dear listeners. It is Alex Steed, one of the co-hosts of You Are Good. This is the show that we describe as a feelings podcast about movies. We uh, talk about our feelings by watching movies and then uh, exploring our feelings. <laughs> if you've been here before, you know how it goes. If you have not been here before, welcome. We're going to talk about Legally Blonde today. But before we do that, I just want to let you know that this show is made possible by the generous support of everyone who takes care of us on Patreon. Thank you so much to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash you are good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for helping make this possible. And thank you to Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory. This is a commercial and creative video content production company based in Portland, Maine that does work throughout these here United States. That's Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory. One other thing before we begin, we have a playlist that comes out with each of our episodes. You can find it in the show notes. It's a list of songs that uh, came to mind when we thought about our conversation about this movie and this episode in particular. Uh, You can find that again in our show notes. It's a Spotify playlist. Listen to the songs that are in our brain when we think about this episode. How are you doing? How's your life? Thanks so much for tuning in. It's really so nice that we get to do this. We really appreciate that you're here. Find us on Instagram. Find us on Twitter. That's it for now. Let's uh, let's get into it. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm sad about summer ending. I am relieved that it's not 8 billion degrees out all the time anymore. But I mm. guess I hoped that we would spend more time at a reasonable number of degrees. And so last week we left the summer by having a um, violent uprising against our, our camp oppressors. Yes. Uh, with, with heavyweights. It's only violent if he tries to get out. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going back to school. And what title is bringing us there? Legally Blonde, a.k.a. Oh, I totally forgot you go here. <laughs> <laughs> Why was this one that you wanted to delve into? This was something that didn't completely make sense under our old name, but under our new name, it completely does. And looking at the titles we've been doing lately, I feel as if we're kind of settling into a current focus of talking to smart people about crowd-pleasing movies that matter to them and why. This is a very crowd-pleasing movie, and it always makes me happy, and I hope it makes you happy. I love that as a description of what is going on now with the show. I like what we've been doing with You Are Good. And I feel like this is such a great title for it because it's about someone accepting themselves for very different reasons at the beginning of the movie from the reasons they accept themselves at the end of the movie. And I feel like our mission here in one way or another is how and what processes we go through in order to understand how to accept ourselves. And this is such a great journey. I don't think I'll ever not feel back to school vibes in September. It feels like getting a second new year. Mm. How does that make you feel? I mean, a combination of fear that none of the other kids will like me, (laughs) but also like the start of new projects. Like that's such a good feeling. It's a combination of the best and worst feelings in the world. It's a potent time for me. (laughs) (laughs) Maine is such a seasonal place and that's where I grew up and where I am right this second. We're going back to Nashville in about a month, but Maine's so, you know, up and down with its seasons that the second I start feeling it get crisp, Mm -hmm. we go inside and exact our neuroses into creative endeavors season. 
And then when like April, May comes around and the sun bears mm. a little bit brighter, mm. that's mm-hmm. when we're like, let's get this creative energy all over everybody outside. Like that's like the thing. Like, so like everyone cool. goes into their chrysalis and turns into goo. Yeah. And then you put on shorts as soon as the temperature gets above 30. <laughs> you vent them in. <laughs> a couple times. <laughs> What are some of your uh, what are some of your big takeaways of this lovely chat we had with Alyssa? 2001, which is when this movie came out, was a weird moment for feminism. It was a weird moment for everything, to be fair. And it's really meaningful, I think, to look at this movie maybe as something that for some of us exists at a certain historical moment in our lives and think about how legally blonde <laughs> knew more about feminism than we did in some ways. (laughs) That we would spend 20 years circling the lot before we finally backed into a space to find out. (laughs) (laughs) I've been thinking so much in the past, I don't know, handful of weeks about all of the fictional characters I looked up to in one way or another. And I was, I like like many angsty teens felt really into like Mm anti-heroes because it felt like their flash and aesthetic was a perfectly fine excuse for them not just sorting their shit out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I really love that this movie is the exact opposite of an anti-hero. Like this movie came out, I mean, not the same year, but came out within the same memory of proximity to Fight Club. <laughs> and this movie is like the exact opposite in every way, in a way that's totally refreshing that I didn't recognize or appreciate for sure when it came out. But I really loved taking this journey again, and especially with you and Alyssa. It was really lovely experiencing it with you. I'm so glad. Yeah, it's we've had kind of a 20 year journey around the antihero and the antiheroine. And I think you walk an interesting balance between needing the world to acknowledge that you can be flawed and messy in your humanity and still be valid as a person and as a woman, but also maybe through doing that, being able to say like, but I don't, I don't necessarily want to do that forever. Like mm-hmm. I also want to take good care of bruiser and free the innocent. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And maybe like unpack some of these things that make me so angry and unhinged all the time. <laughs> Yeah, I'm resentful of the fact that that's usually the answer, but honestly, it is. So, uh. <laughs> oh, well, so glad. Let's go play with Bruiser, I guess. Let's go vote for L. Oh, if I'm going to be a senator, well, I need to marry a Jackie, not a Marilyn. <laughs> so you're breaking up with me because I'm too blonde? Oh, sweetheart, you don't need law school. Law school's for people who are boring and ugly and serious. And you, Button, are none of those things. Warner? I totally forgot you go here. You got into Harvard Law? What, like it's hard? Come on, what's the point? Trust me, Paulette, you have all the equipment. You just need to read the manual. Wow. (laughs) It's called the bend and snap. You, however, had time to hide the gun, didn't you, Chutney? After you shot your father. I didn't mean to shoot him. I thought it was you walking through the door. Me! Warner, do 
you remember when we spent those four amazing hours in the hot tub after winter formal? This is so much better than that. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alexander Steed. Oh. Ah. Am I in trouble? You're fine. <laughs> Sarah, we've done a really great job under your guidance of keeping the movies that we watch seasonally appropriate. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've got a perfect back to school film for everybody, don't we? Yes. This is the best back to school movie, the best law school movie, and I would argue the best trial movie. I can't wait to talk more about that. But first, we have a guest. Do you want to tell us uh, about who's joining us? Yes. Our guest is one of my oldest friends, my friend Alyssa. Hi, Alyssa. Alyssa, tell us about yourself. I am a fiction writer. I wrote a book called Little Rabbit that will be coming out at some point in the future, in like 2022. Um, I'm also an editor. I work at a magazine called Electric Literature. I have known Sarah since I was before I could drive legally, I think. Yeah, me too. But that would mean at any point before I was like 25. So, (laughs) yeah. But we've known each other since we were both 16, I think. I think so. Yeah. I I knew you before I stopped eating meat and dyed my hair blue, which is like incredible that I know anyone from before that time. (laughs) It's a different time. Yeah. So Sarah, we watched Legally Blonde. Yes. Alyssa was the ideal guest for this movie. Why Alyssa for Legally Blonde? Because she wanted it. And (laughs) Legally Blonde is about wanting it. I also have to ask, like, did you ask me to talk about this movie? Because I I live in Harvard Square and I'm married to a wasp. (laughs) Specifically because, and maybe this is inflammatory to say, because you hate Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) I do spend a lot of time hating Harvard. That is one of my prime activities for the last four years of my life. And like you and this movie are two of the only cultural entities to have taken that stance before the events of like, I would say really just the past couple of years when the rest of America started being like, huh, Harvard, not great. Yeah. Harvard. What is that? <laughs> Sarah, before we get a recap of the movie, I do want to talk about in a one year span from 2001 to 2002, at least three comedies came out that were centered at Harvard. There was Stealing Harvard, How High and Legally Blonde. Yeah. At that point, like Goodwill Hunting had already been a couple of years ago, years before that, like it'd been like 1997, I think that, that came up. But like, why were we pop culturally obsessed with Harvard in the late 90s into the early 2000s? Well, don't you think that Harvard is like a synecdoche for liberal arts and higher ed? Because like I was thinking when I was watching this, you never see a movie or you very rarely see a movie where characters are going to Yale Law School, (laughs) even though Yale and Harvard have like, I think their law schools are sort of like they chase each other around numbers one and two of the best ranked law schools year after year. Like they're equally prestigious Yale is better in some ways, but you never see that as a device in a movie. Like Harvard is it. Totally. Is that because no one wants to shoot in Connecticut? Like what's the, like what's the, (laughs) they don't want good pizza, (laughs) but like also movies never shoot at Harvard, right? Don't they like never let anything shoot there? 
No, nothing is like allowed to shoot at Harvard. Like you're not allowed to do anything at Harvard. Mm. I think like ever. <laughs> I think like Goodwill Hunting was really excited that they managed to like film at the Oblong Pan across the street yeah. from Harvard. <laughs> oh my God. And they like got like a shot of the outside of Harvard, but like wow. you never see like the inside of it or like the inside the yard or anything like that. It's really interesting. Yeah. Sarah, tell us what legally blonde is. Oh my gosh. Legally Blonde is a movie that I saw when it came out in the theaters 20 years ago. It is arguably the pinnacle of Reese Witherspoon's early career playing incredibly determined young women. This Vanity Fair election, some other thing I can't think of, Sweet Home Alabama in a sense, and then later on Wild in a sort of callback. But like she got her start playing characters who we loved to watch overachieve and like that character being played in sort of different tenors and different worlds. So she played that in Alexander Payne world in election. And this is a movie that sets her up as a winner in kind of an unparalleled way because we open by seeing her getting ready to go on a date with her longtime boyfriend. She thinks she's going to propose and like her entire sorority, like 30 girls are like totally focused <laughs> on this. They write, they all sign a card for her. That's how we open. They all line up kind of creepily and stare at her and her boyfriend kissing when he picks her up to go to the restaurant. They're like super invested in her life. She is the queen of her domain. And it's a really amazing case study in making a character beautiful, rich, totally privileged, totally lucky, totally hateable in that way. And then become an underdog by being spectacularly dumped by someone who says that if he wants to be a senator by the time he's 30, he needs to marry a Jackie, not a Marilyn. (laughs) 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 And so he dumps her in the restaurant. It's terrible. And She's abjectly humiliated, and then she goes to get Manny Petties with her two BFFs the next day, and she's reading a preppy magazine and sees Werner's brother or his cousin, the guy who just dumped her, his relative, is marrying a fellow law student, and she's like, light bulb, <laughs> I'm going to go to law school and prove that I'm serious, and I'm going to win Werner back. So she works her ass off. And she gets a really good score on the LSAT and she has a 4.0 and she has a sexy admissions video. And <laughs> and the admissions guys are like, well, we have to let her in because she got a 179 on her LSAT and we're all attracted to her. And I guess that's the message of that scene. I've never understood it. Yeah, it seems wild. <laughs> it's a weird kind of tone happening there. Then she arrives at Harvard to win her boyfriend back. She does the moment that I think all of us in one way or, or another have fantasized about pulling off where she like runs into him at Harvard and she goes, Oh, I totally forgot you go here, (laughs) which is an amazing line because it's like what you would say in high school. And he has gotten back together with his old prep school girlfriend, Vivian Kensington. And then Elle gets humiliated by Holland Taylor in her first ever class because she didn't know there was reading because maybe they're using blackboard or something. And then basically after more humiliation at the hands of her ex's new girlfriend and also some light flirting with Luke Wilson, she decides she's going to do it for her. She's going to succeed. And then she knuckles down and she does great. And then she gets chosen by Victor Garber to work with him defending Allie Larder, (laughs) who's a fit 
fitness instructor who's accused of murdering her husband. So she works for the defense and she unearths this bombshell alibi, but she won't share it because she swore to Allie Larder's secrecy. And then her boss is like, I'm proud of you, Elle, and now I'm going to grope you. And she's like, oh, no, it was all a lie. I was never good. My self-esteem has been rocked for the third and worst time. And she's going to go. And then Holland Taylor is like, don't go. You're great. This retelling has gotten looser as I kept going. (laughs) And then she swoops back in and shows up at trial and is like, I will defend Allie Larder now. And Allie Larder fires Victor Garber because he's a gross, <laughs> gropey old man. And then Elle successfully defends her client by doing that Perry Mason thing where you grill a witness and they confess to the murder instead of your client. And she wins the case. And then we flash forward to her giving the commencement address at her graduation. And she's going to marry Luke Wilson. This is quite a movie to depict the day you graduate law school as like having this poppy of a soundtrack. Because how many of these people are thinking like, oh, my God, I'm $200,000 in debt right now. (laughs) (laughs) I came into this with ideals. (laughs) Alyssa, tell us about your history with this movie. Tell us, you know, not in plot detail, but like from a larger view, like what is Legally Blonde about for you? Well, I think it was one of the rare movies that I was allowed to like go see in theaters. Hmm. My parents were very like cheap and like overprotective and not to be like totally Asian stereotyping them, but I think they let me go see it because of the whole Harvard aspect. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, oh, it's about like ambition and Harvard. Like, sure, you can go to the Merle Hay Mall and like watch it with your friends. (laughs) But I remember this feeling of like, pleasure just like washing over me as like a preteen girl just being like I don't know what this is exactly like it it didn't really fit like in any narrative I've seen to that point where if you think about it like she never kisses Luke Wilson like she never there's never a moment of like physical intimacy with Luke Wilson like you don't see her getting the guy and so it was like the first movie I've seen where like she didn't get the guy she got the career Mm. Mm. And it was also like the first movie I had seen that had that be yourself messaging that was also like funny (laughs) (laughs) that I like had fun watching and like enjoyed a lot. And I remember all those like messages kind of stuck with me, like especially the Linda Cardinelli curly hair. Oh, my God. So um, good. (laughs) Revelation. Um, And I also probably spent too much time thinking that that was how I think because there's like a whole bunch of 90s movies where like the law works through a series of like epiphanies Mm. I think I probably thought that was how the law how litigation worked for like probably a little bit too long I think we all like to think that I mean A Few Good Men is I feel like the iconic 90s legal thriller and that's totally based on the same idea it's just like in a less silly context slightly yeah I like how the judge is just like and now she'll be charged for murder. And I was like, that, that seems like a pretty big leap uh, in a minute. I decided it right now. <laughs> if trials were that fast, too, yeah. then like we would not have the backlog that we do. Like you just like you get a confession by lunch and you start another murder trial and just switch it up. Sarah, what is where is Legally Blonde sit for you? Why is it a title you're really excited for? Yeah, similar to what Alyssa was saying, like, this is such a comfort movie to me. And so often, especially when I'm just exhausted and when I have, like, no bandwidth for anything demanding, anything new, and I just want to be comforted 
this is one of the things I can reliably put on. And they're both movies that where basically like women are discriminated against for being bimbos. Right. And they're like, fuck you. I can be a bimbo. And also that doesn't mean that I'm not a compassionate person and a good lawyer. And maybe like you're not a compassionate person or a good lawyer. There are a lot of protagonist characters in this type of like light entertainment who are hard to get behind because you're like, but why am I supposed to like them? Aside from the fact that they're the main character. And with her, you really know because she's an extremely compassionate person. And also she's really highly motivated. And that's always fun to be along for the ride for. I'm sure we've talked about this, how this and My Cousin Vinny are the same movie, basically. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think we have talked about that, but totally. Yeah. I mean, obviously, this has a lot more to say about what women are going through than My Cousin Vinny does, which has little to say in that arena. But Elle is just like, I'm going to keep being Elle, but highly professional in law school and graduate from Harvard Law. And My Cousin Vinny, he's like, I'm going to be a very loud Italian man um, in a rural rural setting. In, In the rural south in the rural south and i'm gonna keep being that and i'll win the day in the courtroom and they're both movies where like you can be an outsider but if the truth is on your side then like all the people who doubted you were just forced to be like oh my gosh he's right it's true we care about the truth and we saw it now we have to like you rather than the other way around and let me tell you i really (laughs) believed that one i really thought (laughs) that like when people were confronted with the truth and american law and government when the truth is right in front of you you're forced to acknowledge it right and like no not at all anything the opposite if anything you can't show people the truth frontally because they get offended and send you to jail yeah you have to slide it in the backside grease it up (laughs) like it's interesting to me that she goes through like kind of a mental makeover but Elle doesn't Mm. really ever change in the movie if you think about it like she just she ends the movie with the same kind of personality and like style and everything as before like her buckling down Hmm. being serious montage is her buying like an iBook she still has a pink fluffy pencil she still has her dog is still in her bag her resume is still pink and perfumed like she doesn't change her presentation or her interests to fit Harvard she just like persists in being this like bubbly sorority girl but just also raising her hand in Victor Garber's class and making weird arguments about sperm, which impressed him for some reason. (laughs) I love that moment. Well, I took a bioethics class once and like that was exactly the kind of conversation that we were having in there, which is just like, if we took this to its most bizarre conclusion, what would we end up with? Something I find remarkable about this movie is how like when this came out, I was 13 and I was really kind of conditioned to feel annoyed at the Elwoods type like I very much was exactly the type of person who would have discriminated against her and like did in middle school and high school against someone who was like bubbly and also feminine in the ways that I was telling myself were just like dumb which was you know unfair and insecure of me I find it kind of amazing that I that this movie worked so well on me and I think it like I, I wonder about why you think it was able to be so successful Yeah, that is the trick of it, isn't it? It's like very brilliant in that way. I was the same, Sarah. Like, I remember watching the movie and like at first kind of identifying with Vivian Kensington, the Selma Blair Mm -hmm. character, Mm -hmm. just that that was much more the kind of person I I thought I wanted to be or I thought I was supposed to be like very serious, 
like very brunette. I don't really know what else to say besides that. Yeah, yeah very yeah. brunette. And I totally, there were so many moments when I so was that character and I totally would have been like, ugh, this blonde girl came in and she was totally unprepared and she was taking notes on a heart-shaped notebook. Ugh. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like for a long time I was very much kind of trained to think that if I wanted to be taken seriously as an intelligent, ambitious person, that like I could not be feminine, like, in the slightest. Mm-hmm. And I think I had that thought up until, like, literally maybe, like, a year ago. Until, like, yeah. whenever we went into lockdown, I was like, no one has to see me anymore, so I'm just going to, like... <laughs> buy a lot of dresses on thread up and also these gold boots for some reason because mm. I don't have to stand up or go anywhere but my mother like really doesn't like makeup my mother really doesn't like has very short hair she doesn't really like that I have very long hair and mm. it, it's it was this kind of attitude of like you're not going to be taken seriously if you're seen as like very very feminine like if you like laugh a lot like, I'm a very giggly kind of like bubbly person mm-hmm. so I remember getting that messaging of like, you aren't going to be taken seriously in a school or professional context if you kind of maintain this behavior. And I remember like um, in my 20s, like being like, I'm not going to be feminine. I'm not going to dress feminine. Like I wore a lot of, I mean, Sarah remembers these days of me wearing a lot of like pants that I literally pulled out of the trash in West Philly that didn't like fit me. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I feel like a a trash pants era is totally (laughs) like a phase of a well-lived 20s. I think everyone kind of goes through that that series in your 20s where you're just trying to figure out like, do I like the sort of like Cosmo Girl Mm. magazine version of femininity for itself or do I just like it because I've been trained to do it? Yeah. At some point you go into the opposite direction and then you figure out your way back. I think that a lot of people end up projecting that same thing onto Elle because they assume that she's subscribing to what she subscribes to for the same reason that they don't subscribe to it in one way or another. And I, at least that's what that's what I did for a super long time is I'm like, I'm like, I don't like you for liking the things that you do because I don't like them as a means of definition of myself. So if you do like them, it means particular things about you. Mm. Whereas like, I'm surprised that this movie pulled off what it pulled off you know, 20 years ago to make Elle sympathetic in the way that Elle is sympathetic. Right. Some amount of it is the strength of Reese Witherspoon herself. She has the face acting abilities of a Disney character. She's amazing. Like you're, you're totally pulled in and just with her. Yeah. If you're me and I know I am. This feels revolutionary for a movie to come out 20 years ago, considering, you know, how much work has been done recently to go back and demystify and give bimbos another shot in one way or another. And this movie really went hard on doing exactly that as like the protagonist of it. And it feels, it feels like an outlier. I like just read this article actually by this author, Marlo Granados. It's like about bimbos. Mm. We make the mistake and I well, I definitely made the mistake when I was younger of thinking that like if I saw a person who like clearly valued their looks or putting a lot of effort into their appearance um, in certain ways that they didn't care about other that their values were somehow bad, that they didn't care about other things or that they wouldn't care about the same things I, I did at the time, which was like a prejudice that was like sort of just accepted for some at least in like my social circles or like with my friends yeah and I think really was until like pretty recently among feminist circles and I think that's one of the reason that like you know women like Tanya Harding and my gosh Paula Barbieri no the other Paula from the early 90s who 
uh, alleged that oh. Clinton had sexually assaulted oh. her. Oh, right. What's Pollock Jones. Yeah. Yes. Who was married to the guy who played Elvis in Mystery Train. Like, yeah. One of the reasons that feminism kind of didn't help women who were just seen as bimbos for whatever reason in new scandals in the past was this idea that like, well, there's a war on and it's the brown hairs versus the yellow hairs. So, yeah. And one of the moments I really appreciated watching this movie for recording this was I realized that some that when you're editing a movie, sometimes you'll like switch day to night, implying that time has passed, but characters are still talking about the same thing. And you're not saying that it's like hours later in the conversation. It's just a way to sort of give it a sense of motion. I know that that's something that you do sometimes when you're making a movie. However, it's also possible that L and Luke Wilson get in the car and leave the spa as L is saying to Luke, we can't trust Raquel Welch. Look at the icky brown color of her hair. And then we cut to they're arriving at Harvard. They've driven there from the Berkshires <laughs> in, I believe, Western Massachusetts. It is nighttime. <laughs> And Luke Wilson is saying, so now you're prejudiced against brunettes, which implies that she has been expounding a theory for like an hour and a half. <laughs> and she spent like the entirety of Massachusetts, of the length of Massachusetts, just being like, I hate people with brown hair. And, that's well. a, that's a and then like catch. listing Adamses. <laughs> that is a long ass drive. You need something to talk about, you know? <laughs> So I feel like something relevant is that both of you are like deep in New England. You know how there's like a deep south and there isn't a deep of other regions. I think we should start saying that you're both in deep New England. This is also a movie about a Californian going to Massachusetts. Yeah. Right. <laughs> how is this functioning as like a culture clash story for you guys? When she first gets there and like no one's really nice to her and she talks to her friends on the phone and reports that like no one is very nice to her and her friends aren't hearing her because one of them is getting married. Like my initial thought was like, that's just New England. Yeah. <laughs> it's certainly your experience at Harvard. That's very much the focus of this movie. But yeah, it's like a, a large part of that is just being in New England. <laughs> Wait until she parks where someone has dibs. <laughs> Get stabbed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, when she's just like walking onto campus and she's like, hello, hello. I'm just like, oh, no, no, yeah. sweetie, you're, no one's going to no one's going to say hello back. It's kind of like Crocodile Dundee. It is like Crocodile Dundee. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, too, like the way this movie is imagining Harvard, because she's talking to the orientation guy and she's like, where's the social calendar? And he's like, What? We at Harvard are too smart to socialize. And it's like, I'm pretty sure that the law school at Harvard has social events. They're not like above socializing at Harvard, I don't think. I feel like a lot of the function of Harvard is to be a giant social club. Totally. Right. It's like the whole thing. Yeah. There would definitely be a mixer. <laughs> and like the eating clubs, whatever the hell those are. I assume because they're private that they like just eat human flesh. <laughs> in those. Yeah. This movie is so brilliant and that it makes you forget like so many things. Like, first of all, it makes you forget the idea that like a wealthy white woman would not be like Harvard materials. Like, first of all, like very ridiculous. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> 
It does kind of speak to like the flawed thinking of institutional diversity grabs in the early 2000s, because at some point in that weird interaction where they're watching her video, as they're like, we do want a more diverse student pool, don't we? And their diverse student pool is a very affluent white lady. Who's hot. <laughs> Who's hot. Yeah, she needs affirmative action because she's yeah. hot. Like, Yeah, there's that line like, we've never had a first passion merchandising major before. <laughs> it's Oh my god. They all have this tone of like, well, we have to let her in. I mean, our hands are all tied somehow. Yeah. I'd love to revisit what you both were saying with regard to like this being one of the first movies that you saw that in like a popular movie way really sold the like be yourself, be driven. That was kind of a resonant message or or a message you recognized in it. Like what about it stood out to you beyond other movies that maybe tried to do the same thing. I mean, if you think about the nineties, there was this whole kind of genre of like the makeover movie and Mm. it's like, be yourself, but also like be someone else. Like you're a nerd, but also like, we're going to completely change your hair and your clothes and your, be yourself, but be better. And don't wear those glasses. Just walk into shit. Yeah. You're going to be a different person, but you're still like being yourself. You think about like Miss Congeniality or, um, she's all that. The princess diaries. Like a lot of movies where they're like, look at this hideous bitch. (laughs) It's Anne Hathaway. Yeah. (laughs) And then they take off the glasses and the ponytail and they're like, oh my goodness. A lot of the Be Yourself movies do also require you to at some point like to stop being yourself. Yeah. Legally Blonde, like she never really stops being Elle Woods. She never stops having a hat with like a big flower on it and like hanging out with Paulette and like getting her nails done. Those parts of her like never really change. There's that really bad line that Luke Wilson says. Yeah. It's like, it seems really meaningful, but if you think about it to like three (laughs) seconds, you're like, well, what the hell does that mean? But you feel Uh what the moment is supposed to be where he's just like, he catches her as she's like fleeing um, Victor Garber. And she's like, I'm tired of pretending to be someone that I'm not. And he's just like, what if you're pretending to be someone you already are? (laughs) And his voice like breaks. (laughs) 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 But like you feel what that moment is trying to say, which is just that like she is a lawyer or she's becoming a lawyer and she's also still like still in the pink suit and she's still really bubbly and she's still a Delta new and like all these other She doesn't give up her old self in order to become a new self. She keeps carrying out the behavior that a lesser movie would try and take away from her. This reminds me of how one of my favorite things about heavyweights is that none of the kids lose any weight (laughs) in that movie. They all like end the summer weighing the same as they did at the start because that wasn't the point of the journey. The journey was about anarchy. And she ends her commencement speech by going, we did it. Yeah. It's like exactly the kind of feminine speech that people like will harangue you about endlessly if you do in public and you have to just be like, fuck off. This is how I talk. They'll certainly send you emails about it. (laughs) This is not a criticism. (laughs) I love everything you do, but I hate the way you do it. (laughs) What's great about people being like that online is that if you've had shady parents you're just like this is nothing this is you have i was born into darkness i was born into darkness <laughs> speaking of born into darkness this movie luke wilson vehicle came out four months before the royal tenenbaums wow and 2001 saw the royal tenenbaums luke wilson and legally blonde luke wilson <laughs> and i saw both of them in theaters 
Also, like a fun fact, the Legally Blonde movie, you also see both of those Luke Wilsons because apparently they had to like reshoot the end. And so oh. he's like, he already had oh. shaved his head for the Royal Tenenbaums. And so he's wow. wearing a horrible wig in that last, in the Harvard commencement speech scene. I love a horrible wig reshoot. Yeah. I love it. This is the second of those we've had. Pretty in pink. Oh. Andrew McCarthy, horrible wig. Yeah, skinny ass Andrew McCarthy in a mop. this movie has a really nice amount of courtroom i do not want to spend an entire movie at trial life is short people don't even like real trials that much (laughs) and like this movie uses the device of a trial in an absurd way and yet a way that you are totally on board for to me, like of everything in this movie, the Enrique subplot has aged the worst. Yeah. yeah, It's not essential. They could have done so many other things. The whole premise of her finding Brooke's alibi and not being able to use it and then being able to do the very thing that we saw her when we were first learning to love her, which is using her extremely te- technical knowledge of girly things right. to unseat someone who thinks that they have her right in pocket. It's just like very gratifying to come back around and use like Chekhov's L's understanding of the beauty and fashion industries. <laughs> it's subordinate to the movie. We don't get to the case until the third act. And it's really about the relationships between the characters. And we're interested in the trial dynamic kind of in a way that serves the journey that our protagonist is on, which a lot of trial movies are about that, but they don't admit that they're about that. To go back to kind of what I was saying about the like the be yourself movie and like this kind of being the first movie that I saw where I was like where she actually just does remain herself. That trial scene like with the curly hair and the perm like Mm -hmm. it's just so perfect because it's like only Elle would have known that like fact about curly hair chemicals that I I don't even really understand and can't say. But like, it doesn't even matter. It's it's like in Mike Hunts and Vinny, you're like, oh, she clearly knows what she's talking about. Yeah. That her all her prior experience as like a sorority girl, as this bubbly person is like coming to fruition in this like trial scene. And mm. like actually the things that she was made fun of for or that like were the reasons why she was supposed to be a bad lawyer actually end up making her like a good lawyer in this case. Yeah. Well, and how many things, how much has been overlooked historically in sort of like major trials because they were seen through like an exclusively heterosis white male perspective? Right. Oh, yeah. Again, like Victor Garber represents that in this situation. Although, Sarah, in our Sleepless in Seattle episode, you said that it was the straightest Victor Garber's ever been in a movie. And I would say that this is a contender. I know. I was like, <laughs> how did I not mention Legally Blonde? It's clearly between this and the first Wives Club. <laughs> yes. Yeah, totally. It illustrates that in a really fun way by actually having this other perspective who cares about unserious things like not assaulting people in their office. She's able to see like (laughs) what is immediately before anyone who was able to look. And as she said, you know, it's not just her who'd be able to see it. It's her and any Cosmo girl, which I really enjoyed a whole lot. I like that line. I love that. Yeah. That's what's erased from the like cliche be yourself movies, which are like be yourself minus the garish 20%. Minus the good part. Right. Like the garish 20% is like actually probably the most helpful and useful part of you to yourself and to like everything and everyone around you. And like by eliminating that, you actually, there's not a lot of good that comes out of doing that. 
Well, and Alyssa, I realized as you were talking about the the big perm twist that like Elle is actually acting out what I understand to be one of the big reasons for diversity in hiring. If you're looking at it from a like, how does it benefit the corporation standpoint, which is if you have more diverse teams, you'll have better problem solving and it'll be better for you. It's not just something that you can do to be nice. So it's like she's acting out as like the most acceptable possible face I've been discriminated against because I'm a bimbo, but here I am using my bimbo knowledge to win the case. Makes you think. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's why I I do love this movie so much is that it does take this like feeling of like the way that you're being read by the outside world is different from the way you are or something is being missed just by your surface appearance. But it's also doing it in just like the most basic way possible but because of that it's able to kind of like really pinpoint that feeling Mm. without having to get into the white supremacy and racism and fun horrible history of the united states it can just like really zero in on that feeling itself and like examine it yeah it's so interesting it's almost like if you had some little kid relatives in a big fox news family this would be something you would like sneak to them as a gateway drug to critical race theory in a bizarre way quote unquote critical race theory yeah critical l woods theory <laughs> yeah exactly. i can't get enough of how fun this movie is like that it can do that but also be f- have pleasure and humor and like fun in it whereas like if you are talking about prejudice in like a more serious context it's like not it's not really possible and even in the context of harvard i I was watching this and i was like is victor garber alan dershowitz yeah it's like they act nothing like each other aside from groping students and being the best defense attorney in the state in that case it's like the world wasn't even ready to look head on at like professors sexually harassing students or anything like that But I think I'm always fascinated by how as humans and maybe especially as American humans, we always want to identify as the underdog. And sometimes we meet that need by being like, contrary to all evidence, I am the underdog. And that can go in some really bad directions. Yeah. Alternatively, that same need can lead us to looking at people who actually are underdogs and wanting to understand how it is for them and and trying to make the world better for them there's a lot of things taking people in those divergent directions but i feel like the same human need to be part of a story can take us to so many places i feel like can we like talk about the victor garber in the office like groping scene also yes i remember being like hit by that scene when i was 14 feeling it really hitting me again this time around Mm. But the, like the worst part of it not being the Victor Garber scene itself, but the moment right after with Selma Blair when she's just like mm. all of her assumptions like snack back stuff. What was your read on that scene when you were 14? I think it was like completely crushing to me because they were just starting to become friends. And then not just to realize that like this person who holds the keys to your career, who you think is like has like seen something inside of you that you want, which is that you want to be um, a good lawyer, that you want to be seen as smart and good at the job that you're going for, that that person is saying all these things just because they want your body and because they want to sleep to you. Like that is such a crushing scene. But then to like have like a woman that you're starting to become friends with also like affirm like, yeah, you are just body and that's like all you're good for, like immediately afterwards, that is like the crushing moment for me. And then she can only be kept there by other women, which never 
never occurred to me because Luke Wilson's like, don't go. And she's like, bye. And then Holland Taylor gets her to stay. Holland Taylor, who goes to the same salon where Paulette works. Do I believe it? No. Not really. Do I care? <laughs> also, no. <laughs> I know. I love that moment, too, even though it's also like there's no this is also very ridiculous. Also, Paulette should have a Boston accent, but that's like a different story. Jennifer Coolidge is from the area. Why didn't she bust that out? Really? <laughs> I've, I'm always kind of surprised by that, but she's from I think she's from one of the shores. Oh, then she should be just dropping her R's back and back and forth. <laughs> yeah. And there's not a single Boston accent in this movie either. They weren't capitalizing it at all. We're going to ignore the Boston part. Yeah. And and like The Parent Trap, which we talked about recently, like this is a very full movie. Like I think I would put this in the category of light entertainment. Like this almost feels like a Disney Channel original movie made by a major studio. Yeah. I always love it when there's a movie that has a premise like Bimbo goes to law school. What's going to happen? Where like they could very easily just kind of coast. And so much happens. Like, they don't snooze for a second. Yeah, there's just, like, so much going on. There's just, like, there's Paulette's whole B story and the bend and snap and the, Oh, my God, the fucking (laughs) bend and snap scene is... The bend and snap! And it feels like it's from Zoolander a little bit. Totally. Oh, my God. It's like this one scene, one scene in the movie that takes place in a slightly more alternate reality than the rest of the movie, which I really appreciate about about it. Yeah. And then this, the Royal Tenenbaums and Zoolander (laughs) all had at least one Wilson in them because in 2001, it was a time when the Wilsons were in every movie. Is that the joke when he says, do you think that I could pull off blonde? And she says, she says like, she doesn't think it would work. Is is the joke that Owen Wilson is the blonde Wilson? I feel like it. Oh, I didn't even think of that. But then again, it's like, I don't think that in 2001 you could expect a theatrical audience to know who Owen Wilson was necessarily. Right. This was before we reached full saturation. <laughs> you know, the guy from Bottle Rocket. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> This is another one of those movies that we talk about a lot, I feel like now, where we are able to be sympathetic for the extraordinarily affluent in a way that just does not happen so much anymore in movies. Usually you make someone this affluent Mm. in order to make them a heel. I feel feel like our movies in America are like, whether someone is rich or poor, they kind of live the exact same way, which is... Mm -hmm that like money doesn't know how to affect their storylines. I mean, there's like no discussion in this movie, obviously, of how much Harvard costs. Right, of course not. One of the things that I found incredibly gratifying uh, in the past couple of years is the Operation Varsity Blues College Admissions Felicity Huffgate scandal, Huffman Gate. One of the things I feel like that brought into the conversation was the idea of like, well, the prestige of a school is a made up concept. It benefits schools to seem more selective than organically they need to be. And they're selling you prestige and they're selling you it for a lot of money, like a lot of money right? and for unclear returns. And I feel like it was kind of forbidden to, to just say that before. It wasn't just that like, like prestige is obviously a scam, like the Ivy League is a scam, but it's also mm-hmm. that it's such a persuasive scam that all of these celebrities and rich people were taken in or were taken in by it mm-hmm. and like really value it. Like they, they really fucking cared that their daughter went to USC, even though all she wanted to be was an Instagram. And she didn't even want to go. She just wanted to make her eyeshadows and sell them at yeah. Sephora <laughs> and like go to Arizona state. And she's good at it. Let her do that. <laughs> 
that there is something about the like names of schools that still matter so much, even at the very elite celebrity level, like even at the point where like Lori Laughlin is going to like commit fraud in order to like get their child in. It's kind of being implied that the prestige of the name is much more important to the parent than the child in these situations. And that it's like child is accessory. And this is why I really like Elle's parents. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> People who go to Harvard and like become lawyers are boring. I know. That's <laughs> and I think that's played for laughs and it's great, you know, and you want them to be like probably a tad more encouraging, but I actually really enjoyed her parents as much as we only see them twice in the movie. And like the last one is like a punchline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. They're not at all people who are angling to get their child into a school that she doesn't want to go to because it would reflect well on them. She has to hire her own Coppola. Yes, exactly. I mean, they strike me. They're socialites, right? Like they must be. We don't think they do anything. The dad looks like he's wearing a tennis <laughs> outfit. They're by the pool. She, he's ha- He has a martini in his hand every time we see him. Yeah, they look like characters from The Graduate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love them so much. They look like relatives of Chandler Bing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic i forgot how much i love her sorority sisters actually which is yeah. sort of funny because like i am like trained yeah. to hate all greek life well there's so many reasons to hate greek life and i feel like the current day one is like boy they keep murdering people right <laughs> raping them they should stop someone should stop them like once again this movie has nothing to do with reality like we're not like gonna go into yeah. what greek life is like actually like but we are gonna go into this sorority world where like her friends really they don't really get the harvard thing but they are gonna give her their lucky scrunchie so she can get a really good score in the LSATs and they're going to help her study and that I love that they're going to go to her trial and fly across the country to go watch her trial which they don't seem to understand there's so much that just feels real as silly as it is like I love the fact that she leaves an environment where she has basically 30 full-time cheerleaders around her all the time who are so invested in her LSAT scores and so confident that she's going to do well that they have silly string ready when she gets her her score in the mail so they can like hoist her up on a hora and spray silly string at her. And she leaves all that to just go to a place where no one understands her except her manicurist friend and she's all alone and like everyone's experienced that when they're young to some extent yeah if we were lucky enough to have any kind of a friend group or just a place that we feel accepted by and have to leave it to try something new like this is a very like lovely cartoony and yet to me feels really real version of that Can we talk a bit about the arc of why she does what she's doing yeah Elle is going to Harvard to win her boyfriend back. And in the process of doing that, she discovers who she's becoming as she's becoming it. And I found that very resonant because a lot of things that would maybe later in my 20s become beneficial on their own were things that I was pursuing for entirely the wrong reasons and then discovered when I got there. I was like, oh, this is going to be very handy for its own reasons and not for like impressing Mm. someone who was never going to love me in the first place. Oh, like making a table. Yes, like making a table. How did that land with you? And what are your thoughts on the reason for Elle's becoming? Sounds like she's a serial killer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like how many things did I pursue just because I like, I just wanted to date someone or sleep with someone or because I thought that was the, how many things do you pursue? Cause you think that is supposed the life you're supposed to lead. And this is the way I'm going to get that life. And then you end up just doing something completely Mm 
different. Like you end up realizing like actually this other thing that I'm doing is is more valuable. I don't I feel like my conscious brain has to come up with a reason to do things and it doesn't have to be the real reason. It's just if it's a reason that I feel comfortable making a leap. And then once I get there, I'm like, oh, this isn't for that. Right. It's because right. of this, this other thing that I knew instinctually, but I couldn't credit my instincts. So I had to like make up a cover story to tell to myself so I would do the thing. Right. Or sometimes you just don't have like the framework for understanding how it's going to be useful later because it's not later yet. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be later, later. And then you'll have the framework. <laughs> and later can be hard to believe in. Yes. Yeah. Later can be hard to believe in. That's a great, that's great. It's I mean, I, like as someone who briefly tried to study for the LSATs, like, oh, my God, they're insufferable. Yeah. Oh, my God. I remember that. <laughs> I remember when you were becoming a lawyer. Yeah. And like, I feel like I have found that the best way to honor my L Woodsness was by not becoming a lawyer. And honestly, one of the reasons was that the LSAT stressed me out so much. I was like, oh my God, I guess all these questions about like, you're baking a cake, you have five layers, you can have one blackberry layer between one passion fruit and one lemon layer, but there must be two lime layers. Where does the blackberry layer go? What about the pecans? You know, it's just, I mean, it was slightly more sensical than that, but not really. And I just honestly, if I had been trying to chase someone who I wanted to love me again, that would have been maybe the only possible motivation for getting a good score on the LSAT. Like nothing could could drive me hard enough aside from that. If you're writing this movie and you're looking back on the things that you did like for somebody where you were fortunate enough mm. to like come out with something for you, it sure is a relief to know that the fruits were much bigger than whatever you were angling for in the first place. And so, so yeah, yeah. I feel like that's, it's kind of a letter to yourself <laughs> putting, putting this element in the movie. Maybe that's something that makes this movie work for me too, is that as sort of kooky and sweet and cartoony as it is at times, like it, it feels based on something it took me a long time to figure out, which is that like you will look back on the past you like two or three years ago who like knew exactly what she wanted and then be like, oh, you were totally wrong. And that's great. It's great that you were wrong because you made all these other choices. And that's why we're here now, smiling at Luke Wilson <laughs> in his wig. <laughs> or just like sometimes you're you have to have like a carrot to trick you into becoming a different person because yes. like how can you possibly, yeah. like, if you don't know the person you're going to become, like how can you take steps towards that except for like this bait and switch? Mm. Yeah. I was just talking with someone yesterday who is a friend who I, I love a whole lot and they were talking about how their inability, their inability to be, themselves for their own sake they really need like when and they really need somebody like a person that they have a romantic interest in to kind of like pour themselves into which yeah. we know is a that's like a red flag situation yeah. often because like you're kind of putting your anxiety into someone else you're scaring them whatever but I also understand that impulse because often like being yourself for your own sake it's sometimes it's hard to be convinced that that's worth it you're like, why would I do anything for this stupid yeah, thing? Exactly. <laughs> totally. Exactly. Yeah. You're like, for this guy, why the fuck would I put any energy into that? Like, I love you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> this guy's tricky. Yeah, uh. totally. And so sometimes that's going to be your motivation to set up whatever you're doing for better or worse. And ideally you meet somebody at the end of it, that being you, that you can like enough to believe in. <laughs> right. Right. I think that's why, yeah, Luke Wilson is just like, he's a nice helper guy, but like it's about her getting the job and her relationship with herself. Um, a line I think of a lot, especially when I ask myself, like, what have I been doing the past few years is the part in Showgirls when Elizabeth Berkeley is hitchhiking out of town, having like come to Las Vegas, I don't know, a couple months ago and like won the town over and kicked the shit out of her best friend's rapist and like created her own justice and she's leaving and she's got her money and she became a showgirl and it all worked out. It's a wonderful film. The guy who picks her up is like, so what did you win? She goes, me. <laughs> <laughs> That's this movie. Yeah. <laughs> also, I love the moment when Elle sees her name on Callahan's like internship list. And then she goes, me. <laughs> That's amazing. That's wonderful. <laughs> That's, yeah. Oh, do we have any wrapping like thoughts about how this makes us feel, what we love about it, what we think we wish more people knew about it before we dive into uh, asking who the daddy is? I am concerned that some listeners, not all or even most listeners, but some listeners don't realize that when you make a podcast, you can't mention every good thing in a movie. (laughs) We got a lot of feedback by people that are like, you didn't mention this thing I liked. That was terrible. And so here's here's a list of things that I like. (laughs) Alana Eubach. How Elle throws an entire thing of chocolates at her TV after taking bites out of a bunch of them and deciding that she doesn't want any of them. It's a beautiful show of flamboyant grief, and we all should do that someday if we want to. Linda Cardellini. Perfect. Who we already talked about and her wonderful perm. <laughs> I didn't appreciate the shape of Linda Cardellini's perm until now. Like, I know that Card- like Cardellini's, yeah. I knew that, like, I know Cardellini's perm from this movie, but I didn't fully appreciate that it almost feels like a um, Tim Burton character. Like, the shape of that yes. thing is fantastic. No, she looks like she's like a comptroller in Gotham. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Other great things. All of Elle's outfits, obviously. The scene where she and Vivian bond and Bruiser licks her. The way that she, like, beams as she watches Vivian bonding with her dog. It's compersion. I just find this movie so lovable. Just assume that I love everything about it and assume that the stuff that you think is problematic i also think is problematic don't bother me thank you all the gay stuff isn't great it's also surprisingly not bad considering it came out alongside like road trip i i think that we're having this moment of unpacking like how mean the culture of i don't know 2005 to 2015 ish was 2013 at least how South Park was like a pretty important, you know, voice of political dissent for a while there. And just the sort of the culture of like pseudo ironic racism that I think really flourished and online alleged humor in a way that people are like, I've heard be like, it was 2007. It was a different time. And I feel as if that excuse (laughs) sometimes sounds like the Harvey Weinstein. It was the 70s excuse, but it was a relentlessly mean culture and where you would kind of competitively try to prove that things didn't bother you. And I feel like it's hard to put that in context without thinking about it as a response to like the staggeringly intentionally 
idiotic culture of like early 2000s like Iraq war era America where like the yeah. what we have now feels more toxic to me because the, the evil is so overt now in American politics but the mainstream culture in the early 2000s I feel like was just so committed to being just ignoring facts just being like I see no reason to think that Ali Larder didn't kill her husband She's guilty. End of story. Right. <laughs> like, it, it makes sense to me kind of thinking about how, you know, in order to do something like embark on the Iraq war, like we have to have a culture committed to just not noticing the obvious. It makes sense to me that that's sort of like the meanness of the culture maybe was a response to that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like any movie that came out around this time, like if you had a movie that came out in 2000 and a movie that came out in 2003 and you just showed me 20 of them, I could pretty much with accuracy without remembering when they came out and nailed down which ones were made before 9-11. And like, because the color grading is different for one thing. That that is absolutely the truth. But also (laughs) just like tonally, it's like this came out this summer that like shark attacks were a big deal in the news and like Ben Affleck and J-Lo were together for the first time. Yeah. It came out in that period that like feels very very, very light before things got very, very dark. Also, Ocean's Eleven, made before 9-11, released after it. Like, that and this are just, to me, they're such time capsules of the pre-9-11 American optimism Optimism that's just like, you can do anything. Be yourself. Rob the Bellagio. Win your wife back. Be yourself. <laughs> and then there's the post-9-11 optimism that's like, if we ignore the fact that there's no reason to invade this country, we can invade this country. That's optimism. Yeah. This movie also is like a weird time in feminism, I feel like, which is like hard to kind of remember that like, which I was thinking about with the Holland Taylor character that like we're, we're at this moment where like the most revolutionary thing you could kind of say about feminism is like, you can be pretty and ambitious. Yeah. It's hard to remember now the aesthetics of feminism were like such a big deal, like back then, like 20 years ago. Like, is this like third wave feminism's like poppiest moment? Uh, Yeah. I think this is like the peak pop moment of like third wave feminism legally blonde yeah. <laughs> sun's up it's a little after 12 make breakfast for myself leave the work for someone else people say they say that it's just a face They tell me to act my age Well I am on this perfect day Nothing standing in my way Perfect day Oh, nothing can go wrong It's the perfect day Tomorrow's gonna come too soon I can't stay
We know who the dad is in this movie, Sarah. We know there's a dad in this movie for a a moment. For the point of the setup of this question from when the show is called something else. Who is who is the daddy as far as you're concerned, Sarah, and why? Hmm. I'm gonna say Paulette, because Paulette, she and Al can see themselves in each other. They inspire some of each other's best lines, including El saying, You have all the equipment you just haven't read the manual it's an amazing line and paulette is someone who we meet when she's having a crisis Elle's having a crisis they both see themselves as very like weak and not capable of dealing with this man's 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 world but paulette is the magic person who's like the first person who believes in Elle and sees her value and it's like like go get him well, she's the mommy, actually, to use our friend of the show, Clementine Ford's description. Sometimes you get a mommy. So the mommy's Paulette. I would say the daddy in this movie, I mean, you know, there are some some super obvious ones like like we could easily make the case for Elle. That would be great. Elle, it's very much mm-hmm. Elle's world. It's Elle's movie. I do want to see the storyboards in this movie for every time that they conceive something Bruiser did, because I just right. like, oh my I God. love imagining that they're like, Bruiser's going to like come out of a little, a little bag and he's going to have, he's going to have a graduation cap on and he's gonna have the robe it's gonna be adorable i just want to see all the storyboard pictures so the storyboard artist is a contender for this but i think i think ups guy who we only ever know oh, as yeah. ups guy who looks like johnny bravo with brown hair yeah he looks like johnny bravo or bruce campbell's like handsome handsomer cousin yes Handsome in a different way. Exactly. Yeah. Bruce Campbell. Bruce, if you are listening, <laughs> we think that you are adorable and handsome and the the pinnacle of manliness. But I I just like that we only we never get to know his name. He just comes in. Mm-hmm. He's like shiny and fun every time we see him. Yeah. He's like a stepdad that you end up miraculously having no problems with. He's the stepdad who you have walked down the aisle instead of your real dad. And it's a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the UPS guy. I love him. His name's his name's not important. Alyssa, do you have enough of a of a footing in this to identify someone? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think whoever did like the costumes for Bruiser and everyone else, like just like the moment when he's also the the dog is like getting his hair done also. (laughs) Although every time I watch it, I'm like, okay, but that can't be good for the dog. I know. Just whoever did like any of the like the blocking or whatever you call it when it's like a movie and you're setting things up, like really just shout out. to Totally. Shout out to like all the innuendos that UPS guy gets to say which like oh my god apparently this movie was just supposed to be like a like a series of innuendos for like an hour and a half like this is something (laughs) that i read when i was like doing the research like initially when they're like what is the thing that always makes me happy? They were originally supposed to say like cunnilingus. <laughs> but like the all have is like, I've got a very big package for you. <laughs> Moments. Very good. But I do think really my favorite character probably is Vivian Kensington, like the mm. Selma Blair character mm. that she gets this like arc that I find to be really like touching just that she starts out as like so mean. She has the reversal where she starts to become friends with her. And then she makes like a really big mistake and she like recognizes that she makes that really big mistake and like apparently does something to repair it at some point in the ensuing years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Oh my God. I love this movie and I love that we just got to talk about it for a long time. Me too. Yeah, that was really fun. Thanks for having me on, you guys. Thank you so much for being here, for being Alyssa. 
All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much to Alyssa for talking about this fabulous movie with us. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, our show producer, our songstress, our music director, the person who brings us wonderful music on so many episodes of this fine show. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for making the beats on the show. Thank you for listening. Thanks again to folks who support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash good. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Have conversations with us there. We love hearing from you. I think that's it for all the jabber you're going to hear at the end of this episode. We're grateful. We're grateful that you help us uh, make this whole thing possible. It's nice to have you. All right. Take care, everybody.